Good morning. As Dan said, we're here to study the book of Ezra, and we have several items that we'll be using the top. Uh, we're also here to talk about things that don't go back together again. Some things don't go back together again. You can try to glue them, tape them. Some things are too expensive to be replaced. Only a fool would think that you would come up here and expect someone just to put something new down for you after you have broken something that doesn't go back together again. World War II, the city of Berlin, at the end is divided into two zones, British and Soviet controlled. The Soviets quickly take total control of their zone of Berlin. And in 1948, they enact a blockade of West Berlin because West Berlin's entirely within Soviet-controlled Germany. They ring the city, hoping to starve the Allies out and gain total control of Berlin. American planes begin to fly past the Soviet blockade and bring supplies to the city. One plane comes to Berlin every two minutes, 24 hours a day, for 11 months until the Soviets finally give up. By 1961, the population of East Berlin is just melting into West Berlin. And so at midnight, August 13th, 1961, a wall is erected across the middle of Berlin, forcibly dividing the city the size of Philadelphia into two sections. There is 27 miles of wall put up between East and West and 60 miles of wall around West Berlin to hold people in. Within 24 hours, 60 of 80 crossings between the two halves of the city are shut down and five miles of barbed wire are installed. There was material sitting around for 20,000 apartment buildings that was all cannibalized off the streets to build the wall. 1,200 windows on buildings that straddled the wall were bricked up overnight. Over the next 25 years, the wall was refurbished three times, becoming stronger and more dangerous each time that they refurbished it. And in 1983, by 1983, they had installed 50,000 automatic firing machine guns that would shoot anything that moved near the wall and required no operator. A deadly, hideous zone. The largest structure ever built to hold people in. And yet, the people inside East Berlin and East Germany continued to hope for freedom. But why bother to hope for freedom in a situation like that? with a wall with automatically firing guns posted on top. Guys, by the 80s, there are nuclear weapons aimed across this border. Anything that tries to punch a hole in this wall is going to lead to a global war. Do we think that the, the governor or uh, the Politburo of, of East Berlin is just going to go on the TV one night and say, we've decided to let you all go and come and go as you please. Start tonight if you like. And don't forget, over all this is looming the Soviet Empire. 
Even if they do let people travel in and out, do we think the Soviet empire is just going to look on that decision and say, well, that's a sensible move. You go right ahead and do that. Do we think they're gonna let people run up on this wall with pickaxes and jackhammers like it's a big party and just take it down? Some things don't go back together. Until November 9th, 1989. There's a live press conference from East Berlin and a surprise announcement. I thought we'd all like to watch that together. Und deshalb äh, haben wir uns dazu entschlossen, heute äh, eine Regelung zu treffen, die es jedem Bürger der DDR möglich macht, äh, über Grenzübergangspunkte der DDR äh, auszureisen. Das tritt nach meiner Kenntnis, ist das sofort unverzüglich. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something, as you can see, almost a party on. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? The East German government said tonight they were going to make more openings in the wall, at least a dozen more, put bulldozers right through the wall so that more people could cross to the West. The East German communist leadership tonight said there'd be a new election law guaranteeing secret elections which the rest of the world could monitor. And only 24 hours after East Germans were told they could go anywhere, anytime, the Soviet Union said that was a sensible move. Sometimes impossibly broken things do go back together. Now you could say they didn't go perfectly back together. East and West Germany were not united. The Eastern half becoming just as prosperous as the Western half. Well, not overnight, but I suppose even that was only a matter of time. I'd like to tell you another story. A story about this family pictured on the screen. Their name are the Ten Booms. They live in Holland uh, in the early 20th century. They are Dutch watch and clock makers. This is a Beatrix Potter clock. It's disgustingly cute. Um, Beatrix Potter was popular at that time as well. The Tin Booms uh, all lived together. The sisters were never married, even in their 50s. They just lived with their father. Dutch Reformed Christians. So Corey, who is on the far, your far right, seated, she used to uh, teach a life skills class for the mentally handicapped in her village. And they would all attend a Bible study where they would pray for the Jewish nation and the Jewish people each weekend. That's probably why when the Nazis came into Holland and began to capture Dutch Jews and haul them away in the night, Corey, her sister Betsy, and her father all built a secret hiding place in their home on the top floor above their watchmaking shop. And there they hid 10 Jews from their town. But someone turned them in. They were captured and arrested, and all three taken to a concentration camp inside Germany. By then, Corey's father was elderly. He didn't last 10 days. Her sister Betsy died within 10 months. 
some things don't go back together. Now in her 50s, Corey stands out in the bitter cold every morning at 5 a.m. for roll call in the prison camp. During the day, she works all day repairing uniforms for her enemies in a barracks infested with fleas and lice. And inside that camp, Corey continues to hope. Why hope inside a concentration camp? A place that exists for the very purpose of extermination and death. She leads a Bible study in her barracks at night. It's attended by women from hundreds of nations all over Europe, all prisoners. She shares her witness of what Jesus Christ has done for her with the guards, her captors. Before she died, her sister Betsy had said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And they both prayed that God would give them a chance to go free from this place and teach people the way of Christ, that there's a better way than this bloodshed and evil. There's a way of forgiveness. Why hope? Why hope? The allies are more than a year away from this camp. Her father is dead. Her sister is dead. The Jews they were hiding in that upper room are probably dead. Does she think that the German guards are just going to walk in one morning, hand her some release papers and say, Miss Tim Boom, we've decided to let you go. There are high walls around that concentration camp and some things just don't go back together. And one morning a Nazi guard does come to the barracks and he calls for Corey. He puts her in a truck. Just the two of them, he drives her out of the camp he takes her to a train station. He lets her off on the sidewalk. He hands her an envelope with enough money to buy a train ticket and says, Miss Tim Boom, your release papers are filed. We've decided to let you go. And he drives away. A clerical error had been made that morning in the concentration camp office. She was given release papers and released accidentally on December 28th. 1944. She did go on to preach forgiveness for enemies all over the world. And all 10 of the Jews they were hiding in that upper room were rescued by neighbors. And all 10 survived the war except for one who was elderly. Corey did start a shelter based on forgiveness. It was for Dutch men who were unemployed after the war because they had been Nazi collaborators. She gave them a place to live and work. And she started a rehabilitation center for Holocaust survivors. God can bring impossibly broken things back together again. I suppose you could say not perfectly. The world was still at war. There were still great walls between nations to be torn down. But I suppose all that was just a matter of time. As Corey often said in her books, God doesn't have problems, only plans. Let's have another story from closer to home and more recent in time. Let's have one from right here in the United States. In fact, right here in Missouri. I want to tell you about Bob and Carol Woody. That's right. That's my mother and father-in-law. My wife has abandoned me for their lake house for the weekend. 
Here's a picture of their family as it was back then. Um, Bob and Carol in their 30s with three boys and one very ornery girl on the way. And uh, they're Bolivar, Missouri's version of yuppies. They own a successful carpet store and a nice house and all sorts of nice things and a nice big family. And in the carpet store, one day, because of some faulty electricity, catches fire. They had inadequate insurance, so they borrowed money to pay their bills, a tragic plan that didn't work. First, they declared business bankruptcy, and then they declared personal bankruptcy, and all at once, it's gone. They were just starting to become interested in spiritual things back then. Carol had been meeting with God ever since the fire, kneeling beside her bed like a little girl. And there beside her bed, receiving comfort and guidance for what to do day by day. And she says, one morning there, kneeling beside her bed, the voice of God came to her saying this, I can do nothing more for you until you begin to tithe. 10% of your income off the top to the work of Almighty God. But some things don't go back together. This is the message God sends to a family with three children and one on the way. This is the message God sends to a bankrupt family, to a single income family, to a family who just barely got themselves into a house in Oak Grove, Missouri. This is the message God sends to give 10% off the top to his work, a God who could not save them from a fiery disaster and losing everything. Was God gonna conjure up more money for them? Was he magically going to double their income? Give them a free car to get around in? Could God make a frightened husband in the throes of financial defeat accept a harebrained idea like this? I want to tell you the story of my mother-in-law's own words as she wrote them to me. God said to me, I can do nothing more for you until you begin to tithe. I told God I couldn't tell Bob that. I said he would have to do it. God assured me that I would have to say it. So I said I would not be able to say it unless God told me the exact moment he wanted me to tell that to my husband. It was a short time later. Bob was paying bills at his desk in our bedroom. Bob said, I don't know what we're going to do. And I had sat down on the bed to put my shoes on, and God said, tell him now. And I thought, no, not now. He said, yes, now. I knew it was the Lord. I told Bob what God had said, not knowing what he would might say. Bob said, if you can get it out of there, go ahead. I guess God did know when to say it. I looked at the checkbook and bills. There's no way to get it out of there, I said. The only thing we can do is take it off the top. And Bob said, go ahead. I wrote the check. I put it in an envelope. I gave it to our oldest son before the three of them got on the church bus. Within five weeks, Bob was given a promotion to district manager, which provided a car that we could use for company and personal use. They told us we just had to put gas in it. 
I had signed a contract to become a teacher at Oak Grove Elementary School. Between Bob's promotion and my contract, our income had more than doubled. In spite of the personal bankruptcy, I called the creditors we personally owed and asked if they would work with us to pay them a little at a time. Even though the bankruptcy covered us, we wouldn't have owed them anything. We wanted to pay our personal debts. So we worked it out with them. What a God we serve. God can bring impossibly broken things back together. Now you could say, not perfectly. They still had to figure out how to raise all these kids. How are they going to put them all through college? Are they ever going to be able to retire? Since they're at their lake house this weekend that they intend to retire to in a couple of years and all the kids are through school, I suppose all of that was just a matter of time. God doesn't have problems, only plans. Our scripture today is from Ezra chapter 1. And I think we've been talking about it all morning in a way. Because it starts with a great disaster. In 586 BC, Babylon conquers Judah. That's the southern kingdom of the Jews. And they tear their temple to the ground. And King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon takes all the treasures out of the temple. He takes all the priests. He takes all the royal family members. He takes all the prophets. And he hauls them away and scatters them across his empire to be resettled and re-educated and to forget they were ever Jews. To forget they had ever made the mistake of resisting King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Within 40 years, there's a generation of adult Jews who have never seen Jerusalem. They've never been outside Babylon. They have Babylonian names. They don't know the law of Moses. And Jerusalem is a ruined ghost town sitting on a mountain far away that none of them have ever been to. And there's no temple. But the prophet Jeremiah hopes. The prophet Jeremiah wrote things like this. This is what the Lord says. I will stir up a destroyer against Babylon and the people of Babylonia. Sharpen the arrows, lift up the shields, for the Lord has inspired the kings of the Medes to march against Babylon and destroy her. This is his vengeance against those who desecrated his temple. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and hope. The Lord doesn't have problems. Only plans. But Jeremiah. Jeremiah, some things just don't go back together like that. There are still high walls around them. Jeremiah, do you really think that the ruler of the Babylonian Empire is suddenly going to wake up one morning and release the Jews, the most annoying and irritating people a tyrant has ever tried to rule, and tell them, why don't you go home and rebuild that temple you're all so fanatically devoted to? Jeremiah. 
Do you think he's going to return all the sacred treasures that he stole from them? Jeremiah, these people are Babylonian captives. How are they going to afford a journey back to Jerusalem? <clears throat> How are they going to afford to rebuild a temple, a city, a wall around the city? Do you think their neighbors are just going to give them gifts of silver and gold the way the Egyptians gave gold to Moses when they left Egypt? Are they going to get it all out, Jeremiah, and count it out piece by piece and put it on a receipt so they can make sure it's all there? After 70 years, is the king of Babylon going to be destroyed by some guy from the Median Empire, the Medes, who's then going to have a vision to let the Jews go home? Jeremiah, some things don't go back together. Or maybe we should read Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. Before we read it, I should tell you who Cyrus is. He started out his career as king of the Medes. And in 539 BC, he captured the city of Babylon. Verse 2. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. Cyrus has a different philosophy. He doesn't want his kingdom surrounded by ruins and ghost towns. He wants it surrounded by strong patriotic nations so that if his enemy attacks, he has buffer nations. He has, they have to go through other nations to get to him. And so he wants those nations around him to be really strong, which is why he writes this in verse 4. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of the God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold and supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. Cyrus, a pagan, but an old-fashioned polytheist who believes every country has its own God. And if you're good to those gods in those other countries, they'll be good to you someday if you need them. So Cyrus has one more matter he wants to clear up. Verse 7. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his own gods. Cyrus directed Mithridath, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items, present them to Sheshbazzar, the leader of the exiles, returning to Judah. And this is a list of the items that were returned. And almost all scholars agree this little list in our scripture we're about to read was originally written in the language of the Babylonians on a business receipt. And someone saved it as a souvenir and has copied it here into our scriptures. Here is a list of the items returned. Gold basins, 30. 
Silver basins, 1,000. Silver incense burners, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Silver bowls, 410. Other items, 1,000. And all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazzar brought all these along with the exiles who went from Babylon to Jerusalem. God doesn't have problems, only plans. This morning, the spirit who inspired these scriptures invites you to think about the impossibly broken thing in your life. So that this morning, you will know there is no wall he cannot tear down. There is no prison he cannot set you free from. There is no crazy miracle he can't do for you. There is nowhere where you can be held that he can't bring you home again. God can bring impossibly broken things back together again. I suppose you could say, well, he didn't do it perfectly. The prophets predicted lots of things that didn't happen. For instance, there is no king in Israel for the people to follow. What about the royal priest, the prophet from the line of King David, who was to be born in Bethlehem that Micah predicted? What about the one called Emmanuel, God with us, who's supposed to come and set the captives free and suffer for the sins of all, according to the prophet Isaiah? What about the prophecy of Jeremiah himself, that there would be a new covenant? Maybe all those things were just a matter of time. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. May you go in peace.